Reread scripture this morning from Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah 7. We read this chapter in connection with Lord's Day 14, which speaks of the significance of the virgin birth. We read the inspired, infallible Word of God. And it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Reason, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told the house of David, saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim. And his heart was moved, and the heart of his people, as the trees of the wood, are moved with the wind. Then said the Lord unto Isaiah, Go forth now to meet Ahaz. Thou and Shear are Jashbub, thy son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. And say unto him, Take heed, and be quiet. Fear not, neither be faint-hearted. For the two tails of these smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of reason with Syria, and of the son of Remaliah. Because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have taken evil counsel against thee, saying, Let us go up against Judah and vex it, and let us make a breach therein for us, and set a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tebiel. Thus saith the Lord God, It shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is reason. And within threescore and five years shall Ephraim be broken, that it be not a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If ye will not believe, surely ye shall not be established. Moreover, the Lord spake again unto Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. And he said, Hear ye now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will ye weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. The Lord shall bring upon thee And upon thy people, and upon thy father's house, days that have not come from the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, even the king of Assyria. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall hiss for the fly that is in the uttermost part of the rivers of Egypt, and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they shall come and shall rest, all of them, in the desolate valleys, and in the holes of the rocks, and upon all thorns, and upon all bushes. In the same day shall the Lord shave with a razor that is hired, 
namely by them beyond the river, by the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it shall also consume the beard. And it shall come to pass in that day that a man shall nourish a young cow and two sheep. And it shall come to pass for the abundance of milk that they shall give, he shall eat butter. For butter and honey shall everyone eat that is left in the land. And it shall come to pass in that day that every place shall be where there were a thousand vines at a thousand silverlings. It shall even be for briars and thorns. With arrows and with bows shall men come thither. Because all the land shall become briars and thorns. And on all hills that shall be digged with the mattock, there shall not come thither the fear of briars and thorns, but it shall be for the sending forth of oxen and for the treading of lesser cattle. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. On the basis of this passage, as well as others to which we'll make reference, we have the teaching of Lord's Day 14. Question and answers 35 and 36, found on page 9 in the back of our Psalters. Question 35, what is the meaning of these words? He was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. That God's eternal Son, who is and continueth true and eternal God, took upon him the very nature of man, of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, by the operation of the Holy Ghost, that he might also be the true seed of David, like unto his brethren, in all things sin excepted. What profit dost thou receive by Christ's holy conception and nativity, that he is our mediator, And with his innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sins wherein I was conceived and brought forth. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the confession born of a virgin is one of the most astounding statements that we confess. Wicked Ahaz went out of his way to worship idols. He even got the pattern of a pagan altar in Damascus And he built similar altars in the temple, in the place of the altar of burnt offering. He was intent on worshiping idols. God sends Isaiah to him as he finds himself now in trouble, as armies are waging war against him. And he requires of him to ask of God a sign. A sign that God would preserve his church and that God would judge the wicked. Ahaz would not do. Therefore, Isaiah gives him this sign in verse 14. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Every Sunday evening, we make this our confession. And it's easy for us to lose sight of the wonder of it. A baby would be born who would not have a human father. This is a wonder. Every single baby that's ever been born has a human mother and a human father. But God would now perform a wonder, and that wonder would be such that a baby would be born that had no human father. This wonder would never occur again, nor had it ever occurred in the history of mankind. And so important 
this birth would be, that for thousands of years after, the church would continue to make this her confession. Now by faith, we lay hold upon this truth. The same God that created the world in six literal days is the God who caused His Son to be born of a virgin. The God who caused the walls of Jericho to fall down, who parted the Red Sea, who parted the Jordan River so that His people could pass through on dry ground. This is the God who has performed even a greater wonder in the giving of a Savior through a virgin. A baby that did not have a human father. And God did this for your and my salvation. He did this as a sign of His faithfulness to His church and to His people. There are many wonders, many miracles that are set forth in the Bible. But herein is the central wonder which gives to us our Emmanuel, our Savior. We look this morning at the virgin birth, noting the meaning, the necessity, and the profit. The Catechism says, took upon him the very nature of man, of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, by the operation of the Holy Ghost. Now Mary was a young woman, most likely in her teens, who had never known a man. And that means she had never experienced sexual intercourse with a man. When she gave birth to Jesus, she was still a virgin. That's emphasized in the Bible in Matthew 1 verse 25. Even though she was already married to Joseph, we read, and he knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son. That is, Joseph did not know her intimately until after Jesus was born. This truth of the virgin birth serves as the foundation of the Christian faith. And for that reason, this is a wonder that the devil continually attacks. He constantly tries to undermine this truth because to undermine this truth is to undermine the heart of Christianity. Critics of the Word of God are quick to point out that here in Isaiah 7 verse 14, the word that's used could also have been translated young woman. They point out, this is not talking necessarily about a virgin who gave birth, but just about a young woman who gave birth. Now, it's true that the Hebrew language is not as precise as the Greek. And the Hebrew language allows for a great variation of age with regard to this word. But from the text itself here in this passage, there is no possibility of understanding this word in any way other than virgin. And that comes out, first of all, from this point. Isaiah talks about a sign. A sign is a wonder. A sign is something that points to some act or some work of God that is marvelous and that points to the wonder of Jehovah's work of salvation. It's no wonder that a young woman give birth. Thousands of young women give birth all the time. Some who are merely girls give birth. That isn't a sign. That wouldn't be a wonder. So that the passage itself emphasizes that the use of this word is to depict something more than just a young woman, a virgin conceived and gave birth. But secondly, notice the name that would be given to this child, Emmanuel. 
That's a special name. And that's a name that identifies him as God with us. No child born of a man and a woman is worthy or entitled to that name. This child would be a special child. And his conception, his birth from a virgin, is what would make possible this wonder. He would be God with man, Emmanuel. But finally, and most explicitly, in the New Testament, the angel of God confirms the meaning of this passage in the commentary we have on this passage in Matthew 1, verse 20. Joseph, you recall, is ready to break up the engagement and put Mary away. When the angel comes to Joseph in a dream and informs Joseph of the wonder that has taken place, the sign spoken of to Ahaz has now been realized. And Matthew quotes then Isaiah 7, verse 14, in verse 23 of Matthew 1, leaving no doubt as to the translation of this word as virgin. The Greek word is precise. And the translation, young woman, isn't even an option. The word clearly is, a virgin shall conceive and bear a child. A woman who's had no intercourse with a man, a baby will be born that has no human father. Now, it's not our place this morning to stress the divinity of Jesus Christ. That's been established in the preceding Lord's days. The fact that Jesus is God. He's divine. The holy thing that would be born of Mary would be God, the Son of God. Here the emphasis of the Heidelberg Catechism now is on the truth of his complete manhood. He would be very God and very man. In order to save and deliver us, he had to be God in order to have the power, in order to represent us before God, to overcome the powers of sin and death. He had to be very man to serve as our representative. And now the emphasis is that Jesus was a man. He was flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary. And that emphasis is found throughout all of our confessions. It's an important truth. And it's a truth that had to be established early on in the church in the context of tremendous opposition. The Belgic Confession in Article 18 makes specific reference to a reason why it was so important to establish this truth. The Anabaptists denied that Jesus was of the flesh and blood of Mary. They said the Holy Spirit worked in such a way that the Holy Spirit implanted in the womb of Mary an altogether new creation. So that in essence, Mary was just holding this one within her. It had no input from Mary Mary merely was the one ordained by God to carry this one and then to bring it forth. Emphasizing then the baby didn't come from Mary. The baby was not of her flesh and blood. It was merely implanted into her and she merely carried it for a time. Jesus, therefore, was not the flesh and blood of Mary. Now, if that were the case, Jesus could not be the son of David. He would not be the fulfillment of the royal promise of God. God took Mary's seed and created His Son out of that human nature so that Jesus could be called the Son of David. As such, He took the throne of David. 
And he reigns on that throne to all eternity. He had no offspring because none were needed. He was the final king of that line of David. Now today, most Baptists would repudiate the idea and the error of the Anabaptists. But tragically, there's many Baptists, Evangelicals, Protestants that even go further and who are willing to deny the importance of the virgin birth. And we'll get at some of that in a bit. But the important thing also having to do with the fact that Jesus was a true man is evident from the fact that Jesus then, born of a woman, had then the flesh, the blood, the genes of Mary. He would have physically resembled Mary. He didn't have an earthly father whom he would have resembled, but he had a mother whom he would resemble. Just as our children resemble us, their father and their mother, so Jesus would resemble then his mother. He had a body, he had a soul, he had a mind, he had a will. He had to go to school to learn. He discussed, he debated, he grew in wisdom as to his human nature. He prayed, thy will be done. Not my will, thy will. Jesus, a real man. Now what is the necessity of the virgin birth? If Jesus was not born of a virgin, he could not have been without sin. If he wasn't without sin, he couldn't save us. And so this is the fundamental necessity of the virgin birth. Jesus was born in such a way that he escaped original guilt and original pollution. And God worked that wonder in this manner, that Jesus was born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit. That wonder is the wonder of our salvation. The whole human race is guilty for the sin of Adam. Adam and Eve fell into sin and God cursed the whole human race as a result of their sin. Now why not Jesus? Why is He not guilty? Why is He not affected by the pollution of the human race? Because He was born of a virgin. He had no earthly father. The Father is the one through whom the guilt is passed. And so God visits iniquity upon fathers and their children. The Father transmits to His children the guilt of sin. And as a result, you and I as fathers are responsible for the fact that the guilt of sin is passed to all of our children. It's a horrible thing. It's devastating. There's nothing we can do about it. We pass to them the guilt that is in Adam. Jesus is the only one able to remove that guilt and to save us and our children. God puts the Father in a position of passing that guilt of Adam on. And that guilt is passed from person to person. Jesus' person was the person of the Son of God. Therefore, it was without guilt. We learned it in catechism, and we confess it, that Jesus has two natures, a human nature and a divine nature, who are united in the one distinct person of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. In Jesus, there were not two persons. There's two natures. There's only one person with the two natures subsisting in that one person. Now, that's a mystery and a wonder for us to wrap our minds our finite minds around that wonder. 
But Jesus mysteriously, as to his person, was able to say, before Abraham was, am I? That is, he predated Abraham. Because he was the person of the second person of the Trinity. He's eternal. And as such, sometimes he spoke with regard to that divine nature. Other times he spoke out of his human nature. Speaking out of his divine nature, displaying the eternal knowledge of the Son of God. And yet, from the perspective of his human nature, having to be taught as a child, having to learn, even confessing that as to his human nature, the Son of God didn't even know when the timing of his return would be. So that the same person, the person of the Son of the living God, actively and consciously existed in two distinct natures. Having no human father then, escaping the divine guilt that is passed on to the whole human race. Avoiding that pollution because that pollution was not passed on to him. His conception was by the Holy Spirit. Now we need to get at for a few moments the idea of the person The person is the central subject of all of our actions. I am the one who sees and lives and thinks. That's my person. We would say that throughout life, our person really doesn't change. Although our nature ages, our nature does change. But the person remains the same. The divine person of the Son of God had two consciousnesses of that person. One a human nature and one a divine nature. Now those natures were perfectly related in such a way that they subsisted in the unity of that one divine person. And this was a struggle throughout the history of the early church. How do we understand that Jesus is very God and very man? And generally, the errors came to pass in that some overemphasized his divinity. Others overemphasized his humanity. They compromised the fact that he was not truly God and truly man. And therefore, the church was led through the Chalcedon Creed to confess that those two natures subsist in the unity of the one person without mixture, without change, without division, and without separation. Now again, what are we trying to understand there? Along this line, we understand then that Jesus was not some kind of a divine human mixture so that he wasn't really God, he wasn't really man, he was like a God-man, some kind of a superhuman. Jesus was very God and very man. The two natures are not merged or mixed or blended together in a way that Jesus then would be something different from either. The divine nature is such that Jesus didn't set it aside in order to become human. Nor did the divine nature change by his taking on the human. So that now his divine nature is different from that of God because it's affected by the human. Nor did his human nature change from that human nature which we have because of its influence from the divine. So that the two natures subsist without division. He's very God and very man. And we insist then that Jesus did not merely in his 
divine nature inhabit a human body? He was very God and very man. A body, soul, and spirit of a man at the same time, very God. Each of the natures then retain its own distinct qualities as they're brought together in the one divine person of the Son of God. There's a constant relationship within Jesus' person then between His human mind and the mind of God. His human will and the will of God. His human power and the power of the Almighty God. And that's why He could endure such painful, intense suffering the pouring out of the vials of God's wrath because he was sustained by God and his divine power as to even his human nature. Jesus then, by his unique makeup, escaping the original pollution and the original guilt that passes on to the whole of the human line. He was born without the will of man. He had no corruption. So when the angel operated in the womb of Mary, no man was involved and the conception took place by the wonder of the Holy Spirit. Now the Roman Catholic Church insists that Mary was without sin. And that's how Jesus was sinless. We reject that lie. That even makes the problem more difficult. How is it that Mary would have been without sin? And we realize that Mary was a sinner Mary was conceived and born in sin. The wonder is not from Mary. The wonder is the virgin birth and the work of the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary as Jehovah God fathered the Christ and brought Him as to His human and divine nature to be such that He was without guilt, without pollution. Corrupt parents can only bring forth Sinful children. But the virgin birth was necessary so that this child would and could be the Son of God, our Savior. Repeatedly, Jesus made that his confession. He asserted that he was equal with God. At the same time, he confessed that he was a man, the Son of Man. He stood before the wicked Pharisees and he confessed, Before Abraham was, I am. They hated him for that, but it was the virgin birth that made that wonder possible. Now this is the seriousness then of maintaining and upholding this doctrine. One of the reasons why the Christian Reformed Churches split away from the Reformed Churches back in 1857 was over this doctrine. So that for over 150 years, the Reformed Churches have been plagued by denials of the virgin birth. Back then already... After seven years of being together, the Christian Reformed Churches decided we need to be separate from the Reformed Churches of America because those churches at best were not clear with regard to the doctrine of the virgin birth. At worst, they were those who emphatically denied this doctrine. And through the years, those voices have only continued to become louder. They claim the virgin birth, that's not one of the essential doctrines that's necessary to believe for salvation. And if that's a stumbling block for some, no problem. They don't need to have to confess that truth. And we don't need to urge them to believe 
that Jesus was born of a virgin. And so that in our day, increasingly, even among Reformed churches, there is this appeal in the lie that the virgin birth is not so important. Some years ago, this was made especially plain by an author named Rob Bell, an influential promoter of the emergent church in Grand Rapids. And he affirmed the virgin birth, but he said it's not really necessary for us to believe. And then he wrote a book mocking it. What if tomorrow someone digs up definitive proof that Jesus had a real earthly biological father named Larry? And archaeologists find Larry's tomb, and they do DNA samples, and they prove beyond a shadow of a doubt the virgin birth was really just a bit of mythologizing. The gospel writers threw in to appeal to the followers of the Mithra and the Dinosian religious cults that were hugely popular at the time of Jesus, whose gods had virgin births. What if that was seriously questioned? Could a person still love God? Could you still be a Christian? Is the way of Jesus still the best possible way to live? Or does the whole thing fall apart? He goes on then to affirm the virgin birth, but says it really doesn't matter. And we ought not get so focused on defending or maintaining this doctrine. Beloved, what mockery. The Bible is clear. Jesus does not have a human father. And by faith, we lay hold upon that truth. Jesus was born of a virgin. And we insist that such theologians are dead wrong. To deny the virgin birth is to deny that Jesus is Savior. It's deny the virgin birth, which the Bible affirms, and by doing so then to cast the whole Bible into doubt. What about all the other miracles of the Bible? What about the other wonders and the signs? Now, they're all cast into question. We are passive with regard to our birth. Jesus was active. Jesus Himself was present with the triune God as God the Father worked the wonder in the womb of Mary. Jesus actively came to do the will of His heavenly Father. And His conception and His birth were part then of His active obedience. The Father did not entrust His elect to a mediator concerning whom He wasn't sure whether or not He'd be able to accomplish salvation. God didn't do that. God gave His elect people to one who would accomplish the wonder of that salvation. And Jesus was born then without sin as one who could not and would not sin. In the very birth of the Messiah, we see the surety of our salvation. Jehovah God is faithful to His word and to His promise. And Jehovah God sent a mediator who would accomplish the wonder of our salvation. A wonder of wonders. A babe born in Bethlehem in a miraculous and wondrous way so that he was very God and man, Emmanuel. The angels could bring tidings to the shepherds in confidence. The wise men could come and they could bow down before this child with the blessed assurance this one was king. He was their savior. And by faith, Simeon could cry out, my eyes have seen thy salvation. 
Here was the salvation of God's church. The two natures, not changed, not divided, united perfectly in the one person of the Son of God. We lay hold on this truth, beloved, by a true and living faith. And we see in it the prophet that's laid out here in the catechism. That he is our mediator and with his innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sins wherein I was conceived and brought forth. This is the beginning here of the catechism's treatment of the humiliation of Jesus Christ. We treat of his humiliation as we begin with his lowly birth, his lifelong suffering, his death, his crucifixion, and his descension into hell. And by Jesus' humiliation is met the fact that he came from heaven in order to take upon himself our nature, to represent us here below, to live in this wicked world under the guilt of sin and its awful consequences in order that he could represent us and accomplish our salvation as our mediator. From heaven and from the glory of heaven, God sent his own son in order that he might humble himself, that he might endure humiliation, and that he might know the wrath of God as that wrath was impressed upon him more and more throughout the whole of his life, culminating finally in the horror of that three hours of darkness on the cross. Why did Jesus have to suffer such humiliation? Because of your and my sin. So that we could have comfort now in life as well as facing death. Jesus suffered so that you and I could know that our sins have been forgiven. That we have life in Him. And that Jehovah God is our faithful Savior who will never leave us, who will never forsake us. The Catechism describes that comfort in terms here of the fact that He's our mediator. We can't escape the guilt and the pollution of Adam. All of us are conceived and born in sin. And that sin is passed on in our generations. Our person is guilty. Our nature is polluted. And there's no escape. There's nothing we can do. We saw that at the first section of the catechism in terms of our misery. We stand guilty, condemned before God. A mediator was sent from God Himself in order to come between Jehovah and His sinful people in order to reconcile us one with another. And so Jesus stands between an angry God and between condemned sinners. And He accomplishes what no one else could ever do. What no creature could ever do. What we could never do. He accomplishes by the wonder of grace. He reconciles Jehovah with sinners. The Son of God becoming a man humbling himself and submitting to such suffering so that by his innocence and perfect holiness, he covers in the sight of God all my sin. 
Jesus Christ, the Word incarnate, is the true mediator. He alone is able to reconcile God with sinners who have been lost in Adam, but are elect from all eternity in Jesus Christ. And Christ now takes us and He restores us into fellowship and communion with the living God. The mediator had to humble himself in order that later he could be exalted. And so we first look at the stages of his humiliation in order then to see the steps of his exaltation. And so Christ made a lowly entrance into this world. A more lowly entrance cannot be thought of, as you children are well aware. Born in Bethlehem, in a stable, in a manger, wrapped with swaddling clothes. There was no room for Christ in the world. The whole world rejects Him in their hearts. We have room for everything in our lives, but not room for the only Savior. He prepared a place for Himself. And He comes in the deepest humility in order to save to Himself the chief of sinners. And so my confession and your confession is, He came to save me from my sin. Notice how personal the catechism ends. That He is our mediator and with His innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sins wherein I was conceived and brought forth. The contrast is established there between Jesus and us. He was born in a miraculous way so that He escaped original guilt and original pollution. You and I have not. You and I have not escaped that original pollution. You and I are doomed by nature. But Jesus Christ came in order to rescue and to save us. And everyone who confesses the sorrow and the grief of their sin also joyfully is directed to Jesus Christ and the joy of their salvation. Only in this way could He take our sin upon Himself and bear it and pay the debt that was required. Here is your and my Savior. His virgin birth is precious to us because this is what makes Him different from us. This is what makes Him able to save and to deliver us. He was like us in every respect. Except sin. He lived among us. He visited people. He went to church. He was involved in all the things that we're involved in. But here is the difference. He is Emmanuel. God with us. And as Emmanuel now, He takes hold of us. And He lifts us out of the earthly. And He brings us into the glory of the heavenly. He does what we could never do. But no man could ever accomplish. All our life of sorrows and struggles is to be understood only in the context of His power and His greatness as He now takes us and lifts us into the enjoyment of everlasting life. And He does so as our Emmanuel. God here displaying His faithfulness. God promised and God maintained His word. And by faith we lay hold upon that glorious truth and we confess with joy 
that he was born of a virgin as my mediator and my savior. Revelation 22 verse 3 gives us this blessed assurance. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we praise and we magnify the greatness of Thy glory in giving unto us a Savior in Jesus Christ our Lord, in marvelously working the manner of His coming in order that He might serve as our mediator, a mediator ordained and sent by Thee in order to accomplish the salvation that Thou didst ordain. And may we confess Him as our Lord and Savior. May we confess the wonder of the virgin birth as our joy and our hope. May we live in the earnest expectation of the fullness of that life with Thee as the Emmanuel, God with man, brings us into the fullness of that covenant friendship in the new heaven and the new earth. Preserve and keep us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.